Well, we are going to go ahead and get started. So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the seven churches. Um, tonight, specifically, we're going to be spending some time in the churches of Sardis and Philadelphia. These two churches could honestly be described as being complete ex opposites of each other. And that's why I love that we're looking at them both together. Um, essentially, this, this kind of shows us what our lives could look like on different ends of faithfulness. You know, one of these churches shows us what a life of complete faithlessness looks like, and one of them shows us what a life of, of full of faithfulness looks like. The other one shows us what a fruitless life looks like, and the second one shows us what a fruitful life looks like. Ultimately, what we see here is that these two churches kind of show us, one, what it means to be completely dead and fallen away from God, and the other shows us what it means to be completely faithful to God amidst all the circumstances of life. So let's begin by jumping into Sardis. So first of all, Sardis was a city that was already known as a cautionary tale to the people at that time. Like when you talked about Sardis, people back then knew exactly what city you were talking about. The reason for this is because the city had been captured twice as a result of watchmen not doing their jobs. So it often served as an example of what not to do for people. One of the times the watchman was asleep, so he didn't see the person coming into the city to capture it. The second time they had this stone wall that went in front of the city and they said, nobody could climb that, we're not gonna watch it. And then somebody climbed the wall and broke into the city. But see, the thing is, is that Often, the, the often lazy nature of the guards in the city seemed to kind of bleed into the church life here too because it was the same kind of attitude that they had about doing church. They were so proud and so focused on the things they were doing right that they had no, they had all these blind spots that they were just so unfocused on. They didn't care about them. They thought nobody could attack me there. Nothing could happen to me this way. Um, and Sardis, as a result, is described as a dead church. I think we've all probably seen churches and maybe even Christians who can be described like how Jesus is going to describe Sardis here. But I, I think what we often don't think about is how easily this could be any of us. And that's what's so important about the letter to Sardis. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. And starting in verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not yet soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first few verses here, just like the other letters that we've read to the churches so far, <clears throat> It begins with a description of Jesus. This description shows him first with the seven spirits. We talked about this in chapter one. The seven spirits are representative of the Holy Spirit. And then it also describes him as the one with the seven stars in his hands, which represents the, the angels of the seven churches. So in other words, Jesus is reminding them that he not only holds all, the, all these churches in his hands, like he knows these churches better than they know themselves, but also he 
has the power of the Holy Spirit that is indwelling the believers here. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going on inside of them. And he also knows who isn't following him because his Holy Spirit isn't dwelling in them. He essentially has the Holy Spirit communicating directly with him about what is going on in the hearts of these believers. He doesn't, like he is here knowing about what's going on in Sardis without ever, without even having to physically be there. In other words, what we see here is that Jesus knows, despite how we may look to the outside world, Jesus knows our hearts. Despite how we may look to the outside world, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our hearts and he knows our intentions. He knows the things that we do for the wrong motivations and for the wrong reasons. He knows when we may look good to the outside world, but when we're not really following him. He sees all of this. He knows all of this. Despite the fact that Sardis gained a reputation for being a really solid and strong church, they likely didn't, they, they likely didn't believe they had any flaws. Despite all of this, Jesus comes right off the bat, like right in the beginning, and says, you guys, I know your works and you are dead. See, these, this church, they believed that because they weren't overcome with sin like many of the other churches, and they checked off the right boxes, that they were doing just fine, and that they were a really strong and solid church. However, the church in Sardis, much like the city of Sardis, is meant to be a cautionary tale for other churches and other believers. It's meant to show us what happens when we do not stand guard, when we're not paying attention to where Satan can strike. In his commentary on Revelation, James Hamilton wrote, We have a great need for vigilance. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. And that's from 1 Peter 5.8. He disguises himself as an angel of light. That's in 2 Corinthians 11.14. See, he knows where we are unguarded and his desire is to destroy us. When we don't heed that warning, we open ourselves up to attack, much like the city of Sardis itself. The problem is, is that they weren't standing watch. They weren't paying attention to what was happening around them. So when the devil came to attack them, they didn't even know that he was there. They thought their church was doing great, and all the while they were dead on the inside. I think that we often can see this happen in the lives of other Christians as well, other people that we may have grown up going to church with who suddenly take a very different turn in life. One of the things that we see here is that the Sardian Christians were not paying attention to where they were weak, and they let Satan run rampant in their church. Jesus doesn't specifically say here what it is that they had, that had gotten them here. He doesn't say specifically if it was a ton of false teaching or if it was just one weakness that they had or if it was somebody who infiltrated the church. He, didn't, he never says, because ultimately it doesn't matter. What matters is that they were no longer functioning like a church. The church in Sardis had become so proud that they couldn't even see where they were vulnerable. So when someone snuck in the back door, they didn't even notice. See, what this teaches us is that we must always be on guard against the attacks of Satan. We must always be on guard against the attacks of Satan. Because again, if we don't, we too run the same risk of turning out like Sardis. This isn't something that was exclusive to them. This is something that we are all in danger of in our lives, of letting Satan overtake parts of our lives unbeknownst to us, of letting sin creep in and build up and build up until suddenly it's running our lives, or, or letting the small attacks of Satan suddenly wear us down until we 
are stuck in a place where we're like, this is not who I was before. And a lot of times we don't even notice. That's what happened to Sardis. But I do think it's important to point out that despite the condition of the church of Sardis, there was still the hope of repentance. Jesus still came to them and said, hey, you are dead, but you can still repent. You can still turn away from this. You can still come back to me. Like there is still reconciliation that can happen here. So repent and turn away from this deadness. Turn back to me and follow me with everything that's in you. Despite the condition of the church, there were still faithful Christians there. Jesus talks about their unsoiled, unsoiled garments, which represents consistent obedience and courageous faith. This is essentially him saying, hey, they haven't been stained by the sin of Sardis. They haven't been stained by the, the issues going on in this church, by the unbelief here. And Christ promises those who follow him faithfully an amazing reward. The best reward they could possibly get. He says that they will walk with him. They will have communion with God because they've been faithful to him. Not only this, but it says that he'll purify them. This is when it talks about, he says he's going to give them white garments. This is him saying that he's going to purify them and bring them to glorification and at the end of all things so that when they walk in a new heaven and a new earth, they are no longer stained with the sin that clings so closely to all of us. Instead, they're walking as completely glorified creatures, completely renewed in Christ. And it also says that he will confess their name before the Father. Now, this is important because this means that the rest of the church who was not faithfully following Christ, the rest of the church who did not repent, and they are not faithful, they will be rejected by Christ. And this parallels what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness this is the exact same reality this is almost like a if that was a prophecy this would be the fulfillment of that like this is the exact position that those in sardis find themselves in they now have one last chance to turn to christ and genuinely follow him before he rejects them forever before he says depart from me because i never knew you despite all the good works you thought that you were doing, despite all the things that you thought you were doing well, despite all the good in your life, you need to understand that you were not ever following me. I never knew you. See, if we can learn anything from Sardis, it is the need for regular and honest self-evaluation in all parts of our life. We need to be able to regularly and honestly look at our own hearts and evaluate where we're at and evaluate our own walk with the Lord, and evaluate who we are, and if we are actually living for Christ. I want to end this section with a quote from J.C. Ryle. It says, Do not suppose you must commit great crimes to be lost. The road of spiritual laziness, or doing nothing, leads just as certainly to hell. In other words, this perfectly describes the church of Sardis. It's not, you don't have to go murder a bunch of people to end up in hell. You just have to be spiritually lazy and not do anything in the first place. Then we move on to the church in Philadelphia. And see, Philadelphia is a very, very different church. Because just like Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia was not rebuked. Instead, they were praised. They were praised for their faithfulness 
and, and they were given promises about the future if they continued to be this faithful to Christ. And so I love this. Uh, picking up in verse 7, this is about the church of Philadelphia. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I, may, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, much like the church of Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia is praised for their faithfulness, despite the fact that they've clearly endured persecution at the hand of the Jews. And I love this because in the beginning, Jesus is introduced to them as the holy and true one. In other words, he's introduced to them as the only one who can make distinctions about what is true and what is holy. This is kind of Jesus' way of saying, hey, I am the one who decides what is true and holy and who can decide who is true and who is holy. Not the Jews, not the old dead religion that they follow, not the law that they continue to follow, but me. I'm the one who decides these things because I am true and holy. He is also introduced as having the key of David. Essentially, this just means that he has the authority to admit into or exclude from the kingdom of God in the New Jerusalem. He's the only one who can open or shut that door. He's the only one who can allow people to come in or tell people that they are not allowed in. And I love how this begins. He starts with, I know your works, which is a phrase that has so far mostly been used in a very condemning way. Because when all the other churches hear this, this strikes fear into them. They think about all the works they've done and they know that they have not done well. Yet in this letter, Jesus uses, I know your works, as a source of comfort. See, Jesus sees the faithful works that we do. Jesus sees the faithful works that we do, and he knows our hearts. I love this because he also tells them that he has set before them an open door. Just like before, he said he he can open what no one can shut, and he can shut what no one can open. He sets before them an open door that only he can open. This is the door to the kingdom of God. The same door that he just established, again, that only he can open or shut. He's like, I'm opening this for you, and nobody can stop that. Nobody can come between you and the New Jerusalem. The Jews, they talk a big talk, but they cannot stop you from my kingdom, from the New Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that you will inherit, not them. He also speaks of them having little power, which means that unlike several of the other churches of that day, they probably had very little influence over the city because of the synagogue. 
They were weak compared to their adversaries, and yet they did not bow to the Jews or to the culture, as we've seen several other churches do so far. Instead, they remained completely faithful to God and proclaimed his name in all situations. He also refers here to the Jews as a synagogue of Satan, which is the phrase that he also used when talking about them with the church of Smyrna. Essentially, he's reminding the Philadelphians that despite how strong their opposition is, and despite the fact that their opposition claims to be speaking for God, despite all of this, he, they are opposed to God, and he is still with the Philadelphians in all things. He's like, I know what your adversaries say. I know who they claim to be, but they are lying. They are agents of Satan himself. They are not working for me. They are not who they claim to be. Instead, only I can say who you are, not them. They can't condemn you. Only I can condemn, and, I'm condemn, and I condemn them, not you. So then we get into the whole, this whole next part here where he just spends all this time giving them the promises of what he's going to give them and what he's going to do for them. And I, I do want to say here, verse 10 can be interpreted in several different ways. So I know we talked the first week about the different, about the different views, like there's the historicists and the preterists and all of these. So among preterists, people who believe that the entire book of Revelation is about events that haven't happened yet, um, among the preterists, there's a group called pre-tribulationists. You don't need to write that down or anything. We're not going to talk about this more in depth until much later, but... For right now, all you need to know is that they believe that Jesus is going to come back before the second coming. Like there's going to be a second coming and then there's going to be another second coming. And that he essentially is going to remove um, all of his people before this time called the Great Tribulation. Um, and so this is essentially the whole idea that based on this verse specifically, that Christians are not going to have to suffer in the Great Tribulation. However, I think it's important for us if we're taking a very, um, if we're taking the approach that we're going to take with this book, I think it's important for us to understand that this interpretation takes away from the meaning of this passage in the letter as a whole. See, what this passage tells us, this isn't referring to a specific event or time, but what this passage does tell us is that God will protect his faithful followers during times of intense suffering. God will protect his faithful followers during times of intense suffering. No matter what kind of tribulation comes, whether this is some great tribulation that has yet to happen, or whether it's the tribulation that we now experience, no matter what type of tribulation is coming, God will shield us from that. He will protect us from it. And he will remain faithful to us while we endure it. Because it says plenty of times in Scripture that we are going to suffer, but we know that He is still good and that He protects us from the worst of it. That's the amazing promise that we're given here. We even continue into verse 11 where he promises them, again, this crown that we've seen him talk about before. But here it's interesting because it's this good reminder that he gives to stay vigilant. Specifically, in verse 11, he's talking to them, and he just got done talking about this patient endurance and about holding them fast through trials. And in verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Essentially, this is just another way of him saying, Hey, stay vigilant because people are going to try and come and steal this from you. Satan is going to try to come in and steal this from you. But stay vigilant and you will endure to the end. And I love it because the end of this letter continues to provide amazing promises to the believer. Because he goes on and he says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar and the temple of my God. 
Essentially, this is another rebuttal of the Jews. He's saying, he's saying, yeah, they they believe in that temple over there, but if you hold fast to this, if you conquer, then I will make you a pillar in the temple, in the spiritual temple to come. And he, he even says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So he's going back and saying, hey, you guys will inherit this new Jerusalem. You will be part of this new earth. Okay, this is your city that has been set aside for you, that your name is going to be on it because of your faithfulness. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And I love this because he even ends this, just as he does with every other one, saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is such a good reminder for us that this isn't just Philadelphia he's talking to, it's all of us. This is a reminder for all of us about why we should remain faithful and what we are promised if we do. So what is the takeaway from both of these letters? Personally, I really love the words of J.I. Packer when talking about what it makes a healthy Christian, because I think this really sums up what we've seen from both sides, about the unhealthiest possible Christian and the healthiest possible Christian. And so J.I. Packer says, the healthy Christian has a sense of God's presence stamped deep on his soul. He trembles at God's word. Let it lets it dwell in him richly by constant meditation upon it. And he tests and reforms his life daily in response to it. In other words, we must live our lives spent in the presence of God, fearing and believing and following God's word, constantly meditating upon it, letting it dwell in us and on our hearts. And we must completely every single day examine our lives and daily reform in response to what God's Word is telling us. Just like before, we talked about this requires honest and regular self-examination. We have to understand that for us to live the kind of life that the Philadelphians were living, it requires work on our part. And for us to avoid becoming like the Sardians, again, that requires work on our part to avoid becoming like that. So through both of these churches, what we see is two really, really good examples of the Christian life. We see a really strong example of what not to do, what we're trying to avoid, the danger that can happen to all of us. Then we also see the hope and the amazing promises that are given to us in Christ. The amazing things that we have to look forward to, the fact that we can look forward to having communion with God himself, the greatest joy that we can possibly imagine. We can experience this this beatific vision, we can experience what it means to stand before our God and behold Him with our own eyes. And all of this is what should motivate us in our daily lives as we are following Christ and as we're doing self-examination and as we daily let the Scriptures guide us and reform us. Let's pray. God, I thank You so much for Your Word, for the truths that are present all throughout it. God, I thank you for the examples that you've set for us, both good and bad, to show us what we are saved from, but also what we are saved for, to show us what it means for those who are not going to follow you, for those whom you never knew, but also for those who have our names written in the New Jerusalem. God, help us every single day to live in self-examination. Help us every single day to stay 
vigilant. Help us every single day to remember the amazing promises that you have made to us. The amazing things that are waiting for us, the riches of your presence. May we be motivated to glorify you every single day in everything that we do. And I pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.